So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4. And then next week we're going to start the book of Ecclesiastes. So that should be fun. If you want to start reading ahead, we're going to tackle the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning thankful that your mercies are new uh, this morning. That you don't leave us or forsake us. That you're truthful, that you're honest, that you're perfect, that you're holy. And just as we've sung, there's none like you. May we be reminded of the redemption that you've worked in our lives, the restoration that you're doing in our lives. Pray especially for those this morning that find themselves discouraged, beat up, feeling empty. Lord, that you would encourage them through your word, through your presence, through your promises. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of a news article reads, Sweden's recycling is so revolutionary that the country has run out of rubbish. Can you imagine? So their recycling is so good that only 1% of their waste goes to the landfill. But this created a little bit of a problem because they use the waste to convert it into heat and electricity. So what are they doing? They're importing garbage from other European countries. (laughs) Hard to imagine that a country would have their act together so well that they have to import garbage from other other countries. Jesus doesn't have any garbage of his own, amen? So he is completely holy, completely righteous, but yet he's willing to deal with our garbage. He's, He's willing to enter into our mess to pay the price for our sin so that we could be redeemed and we could be saved. We've been following this story in Ruth of God's redemption and restoration. Act one was famine and death. It began with a famine in Bethlehem that forced Naomi and her family to go to Moab. They're foreigners. Once they arrive in Moab, her husband dies. Then sometime later, we see her two sons die. She's alone, but she has her daughter-in-laws. And Ruth specifically decides to travel with her back to Bethlehem. That's act two. Seeking bread, seeking provision back in Bethlehem. And then act three is Boaz providing redemption. Boaz is willing to to buy back the family land and also redeem Ruth. And we see the end of this story coming together with God's restoration. Here's my prayer and our hope in our lives is that this simply wouldn't be an academic study or an overview of God's redemption in Naomi's life and Ruth's life but also that we would believe that God is working in our situation, that he is bringing restoration into our lives. And God loves to restore. And restoration is a beautiful thing, isn't it? To restore an old house, to restore uh, an old vehicle, but even more so to see a life that is restored by God. Nothing more beautiful than a life that has God's restoration upon it. So verse one of chapter four, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The gate was the place where the leaders would meet, where the elders would meet. This is where the city council would take place, decisions would be made. If you think of an ancient city, as you're coming into the gates, there would be an area there for the elders. And the reason that Boaz is going here is he's pursuing redemption for Ruth. This is going to be the place where he has to go to the closest relative to see if he's willing to redeem Ruth. 
If you're new to this study in Ruth, maybe this is your your first Sunday with us in the the book of Ruth, it's important to understand this concept of kinsman-redeemer, where God had established in his law that it was the closest relative, oftentimes the brother, that we'd be responsible to redeem the widow, but not only the widow, but also the property of, of the family. God desired for for the property and the name to continue in in the nation of Israel. Boaz is not the closest relative. There's one that's closer to him. So he has to have a conversation with the closest relative about redemption. Also, we see with Jesus that he's more than willing to pursue redemption, isn't he? He's more than willing to do what is necessary in order to pay the price so that we could be redeemed. Continuing in verse 1, And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. This is the classic, do you have a second? We've all been there where the boss goes, hey, do you have a second? You know, if your boss asks you that, you may want to respond, no, I don't have a second, you right? You know, if, if your spouse says, hey, hey, do you have a minute? Uh, nope, nope, I really don't, right? So, so this is the, the framework for the, this kind of conversation, Boaz is like, hey, friend, sit, sit down for a second. I've got some things that, that I want to share with you. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So why the, the ten elders? Because the ten elders are going to be the witness to this, this covenant, this contract, this, this work of redemption. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants. And the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boaz is being very clever here. What does he leave out? He leaves out Ruth. Leaves out that this land comes with a wife that happens to be a Moabitess. Uh, who doesn't want the land? This man seems to have the wealth to be able to, to purchase back the, the land. During the time of famine, during the time of, of poverty, Elimelech had sold off the land. But this was the opportunity to bring the land back into the family. And the closest relative, he says, sure, I will redeem it. Boaz knows exactly what he's doing in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it. From Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, by the way, it comes with a wife. So, are you ready for, for marriage? Are you ready to redeem Ruth? And she's a Moabitess. She's, she's, she's a foreigner. And are you willing to perpetuate the name of the dead being Malion throughout the generations. Verse 6, And a close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is a different story. I'm not willing to, to do this. Why is, why is he not willing? He says, Because I would ruin my own inheritance? Is he concerned that if he were married to a Moabitess, that it would ruin his inheritance? Is he concerned that he really doesn't have the means to take care of, of a wife? 
probably most likely there's already a missus at home. And how's this going to go over with his wife to say, well, you know, had a pretty good business venture today. We have the opportunity to buy some land at a really good price. It's really going to be great for, for the family. But by the way, make room for, for a second wife, right? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there was polygamy in the Old Testament. They, they would have uh, multiple uh, wives. But God never instructed polygamy. His design is one man with one woman uh, for, for life. And you never see women wanting multiple husbands. Can I get an amen, ladies? Like, you just never see that in the Bible or throughout history. They're like, one is enough, you know? It's always, always the guys that are, that are saying, I want multiple wives. But, so it's probably this issue for, for this closest relative that he's saying, no, I, I'm not uh, willing to... to have another wife. But what we do understand from this verse is redemption is messy, isn't it? Redemption is, is messy. It, it's complicated. And there's some that don't even want to, to mess with the work of redemption and restoration, but not Christ. Christ is willing to go to the cross, to become sin for us. He took on our sin, punished for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Have you ever known Christ to not be willing to enter into our mess if we're broken and repentant? If we're walking in unrepentance, he'll let us experience the consequence of our ways. But as soon as we're broken, as soon as we're ready, as we cry out, he's more than willing to to enter into our mess for the purpose of redemption. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to another, and, and this was confirmation in Israel. So if you were to have a business transaction, you would take off uh, your sandal. In verse 8, therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, so he took off his sandal. This comes from Deuteronomy 25. When the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, was unwilling to do the work of redemption, then you were to take off his sandal and actually spit in his face. The idea here is shame and honor. This is a shame and honor culture, and, and you're shamed in that you wouldn't take your rightful responsibility of the, the work of, of redemption. These are weird customs for us. What's, what's up with feet in the book of Ruth? Remember last week where Ruth went and uncovered Boaz's... Uh, Ten toes, and, and now we find this taking off of, of uh, the sandal. I mean, he's communicating that he's a real heel, <laughs> that he has no soul. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> but what Boaz doesn't do is he doesn't spit in his face. He's not interested in, in shaming him, even though we find that in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. Even to today, if someone spits in your face, uh, it's one of the most shameful, disrespectful things that can be done. I mean, even if someone slaps you in the face or punches you in the face, it's a, it's a whole other thing to, to spit in your face, and Boaz isn't willing to, to do that. Also in the Old Testament, with the shoe, where the, the shoe places itself speaks of possession. Remember what God spoke to Joshua? Everywhere the sole of your foot lands, you're, you're going to possess the, this promised land that God would give. And so what's being expressed is he's unwilling to redeem, to take possession of the land. In verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are the witness this day that I have 
bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malion's from the hand of Naomi. So the, the ten elders are witnesses of this. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malion, I have acquired as, as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may, be cut up, may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his possession at the gate. You are witnesses this day. This is interesting that Boaz sees the value of witnesses to this covenant of marriage. God has given the, the covenant of marriage. A question that I get from time to time, I think pastors get from time to time, is it, is it necessary to have a marriage ceremony? Is it necessary to have a marriage license? Uh, here uh, in Colorado, to, to, to be married, you're to have a, a marriage license. And people say, well, marriage is between me and God, so what, what's the purpose of getting a marriage license? But that wasn't Boaz's attitude, was it? He, he was like, I want to do this legally. I want everybody to know that Ruth belongs to me. By the end of this day, it's very clear that Ruth and Boaz are, are married. And I look at it this way, is it's honoring God by honoring the governmental system that he has set up. So why not have a marriage license? You know, why not have it be, be legal in society's uh, perspective? And why not have a, a marriage ceremony where God is your witness and then family and friends are witnesses as well. It's pr pretty easy to dissolve a marriage, to, for, for divorce to, to take place. And I think the more seriously that we take a marriage relationship and realize it's a covenant before God, I'm entering into this marriage license and I'm standing before family and friends and the Lord to commit to, to one another. So Boaz shows us the value of having witnesses in a, in a marriage uh, a ceremony. We look at verse... 11, and we see redemption is celebrated. I love this section uh, because it shows that when redemption takes place and restoration takes place in a person's life, God is glorified and there is rejoicing that takes place. In verse 11, and all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So, so the elders and the people are saying, we're in. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem. So they're speaking blessing upon Ruth, and they say, may she be like Rachel, and may she be like Leah. This was Jacob's two wives. Jacob practiced polygamy. There was deception that took place. He really loved Rachel, and he worked seven years for the right to be able to, to marry Rachel. Then comes the wedding night, and he wakes up to Leah. His father-in-law had deceived him and, and tricked him, but Jacob was a man of deception. He was reaping what he had sown. So then he works another seven years uh, for Rachel and ends up being married to Rachel and to Leah. God blessed him with 13 children from these relationships, 12 were boys, and that became the 12 tribes of Israel. When you read of Jacob's family in the book of Genesis, it is crazy dysfunctional. <laughs> like, imagine yourself sitting in a counseling appointment with Jacob and just trying to figure out all the family dynamics, right? What? You've got two wives, and actually you love Rachel, and you don't love Leah, and man, it seems like the boys really fight a lot, and you gave a coat of many colors to who? To Joseph? And the other guys have white t-shirts and jeans. What, what is going on here, right? 
And not, not necessarily the way that God wants us to do family, but this is the birth of the nation of Israel, and it speaks of God's grace. It speaks of God's redemption and, and his restoration. God brought something good out of a dysfunctional family. Isn't that encouraging? Because our families are dysfunctional. Have you ever fa- met a family that wasn't dysfunctional? We try to hide it, right? We try to go, well, not, not our family, but it turns out we're all, we're all sinners, and God can bring beauty out of ashes in the midst of, of family. You'd be hard-pressed to not find a dysfunctional family inside of, of Scripture. And so there's this blessing. May you be like Rachel. May you be like Leah. And, and Rachel and Leah have the testimony of God's grace. In verse 12, May your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So also, may you be like Tamar and Tamar's relationship with Judah. And this is also a story of brokenness and God's redemption because Tamar was married to Judah's son. He was wicked. God kills him. So she gets married to the brother. The brother's wicked. God kills him. At this point, Tamar is the black widow. She's been married to two guys. They both die. Wasn't her fault. They were wicked. So dad, Judah says, you're not having the third son. My three sons, two are dead. I've got one son. Sorry, you, you can't marry him. So, so here's Tamar left with, with nothing and no, no children. So she decides to dress up like a prostitute and go stand on, on the road. She knows the character of her father-in-law, that he's a man of sexual sin, that he can't pass up a harlot. So he stops and has sex with Tamar doesn't realize what's taking place. She gets pregnant. She has twins. One of the twins is Perez. And Perez comes the family of Boaz, as we'll see when we get into uh, the the genealogy. What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. We would have picked Joseph, another brother, wouldn't we? ZipRecruiter would have gone with Joseph, right? But God goes with Judah. And the reason is, is because God, in his redemption, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, takes broken and sinful situations and brings good out of it. Now, don't misunderstand. God doesn't condone sin. He's not for sin. He's not saying just go, go sin as much as possible. But he's willing to send his son to bring us out of sin so that we can be forgiven and the power of sin can be broken uh, in our lives. So even these professions of encouragement and celebration speak of God's grace. In verse 13, so Boaz took Rachel and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So they're married. They have husband and wife relationship together and God blesses them with a son. Now in Ruth's marriage to Malion, she was barren. In all those years of her marriage, she wasn't blessed with kids. And here right away, God blesses her with a child and, and with a son. In verse 14, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in all of Israel. So they're speaking to Naomi and they say, you're blessed. God didn't leave you without a redeemer, without a kinsman redeemer. You went out empty, but now God is replenishing and restoring and and filling your life once again. And may this son, may, may his name be famous. And ultimately, 
Obed, this son who's going to be born, he then eventually has Jesse. Jesse has David. The line of David is the messianic line. You can't have a more famous name than Jesus. This ends up being prophetic. God really blesses the lineage of Naomi. In verse 15, And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age, speaking of the grandchild. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has bore him. What a great description of God's work of redemption in Naomi and Ruth's life. A restorer and a nourisher. And God oftentimes uses people to bring restoration and nourishment in our lives. He uses himself primarily. That's, that's the primary source of restoration and nourishment in our lives. But also, he uses people. And I think a lot of times, God uses kids. Uh, kids are a blessing, and kids are a, a heritage from, from the Lord. And how many times has a child brought you nourishment and brought you restoration? Maybe there's been a difficult season in your life and, and God blessed you with a child and, and that child's been God's bundle of blessing in your life. Maybe even a, a child that is not your own and they come into your life and they bring encouragement and they bring restoration. I, I love kids. You know, kids just tell you like it is, right? And they have good days and they have bad days and they don't necessarily try to hide it. And God's gonna use this child to bring restoration and, uh, and nourishment to Naomi. In verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. So let's think about Naomi's journey once again and all of the loss that she experienced, the death, the, the death of her husband, the death of her two sons. Uh, this week on Wednesday, we had to put our dog to sleep, Lady Lou. So Lady Lou is uh, almost 11 years old. She's a Newfoundland. Um, if you haven't seen a Newfoundland, you might mistake them for a bear. Lady, Lady Lou is big black dog, uh, and she got old, and her legs went out, and she couldn't get up off the kitchen floor uh, any longer. So our oldest daughter's 14, and then our our youngest is six, and so the kids have really grown up with, with, with the dog, and so, you know, we all went through this process uh, together, and I, I was thinking on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, just the empty space in our house, because she's, she's a big dog, so it's almost like another person in the family. When she was at, at her prime health-wise, she was 165 pounds, you know, her and I were going back and forth on the weight title in the, in the, in the, in the house. And so she took up some real estate in, in the house. And in the last few years, more and more, she was, she was just laying in the kitchen, laying in, in, in the laundry room. And her and I have this routine every night, you know, for 11 years. I let her out to go to the bathroom, and then, then I feed her, and that's kind of the last thing I do before, before I go to bed. And the kitchen seemed empty. You know, the laundry room seem, seemed empty. There's, there's empty space in our house because of the death of our dog. And it, it caused me to think about Naomi and the empty space that would be in her bed because her husband was gone. What a terrible thing, you know? What a, what a grieving thing for those of you that have lost a spouse. You're just, you're so used to your spouse being there, 
and laying next to you when you're, when you're going to sleep. You know, you're, you're used to your, this is where your spouse sits at the table when you have meals, meals together. And, and this is, your spouse is with you and you take a walk together in the evening and all of a sudden, in a moment, that, that happens. And death's kind of surreal, isn't it? Someone's there and then they're gone. And then poosh, that, that, that empty space. Most likely, especially with the, the difficult times economically, they lived as a family. Naomi with her two sons and her daughter-in-laws, they probably all lived in one, one home there in Moab. That's still the way things tend to go in, in the Middle East. And then her sons die. And then as we read that in chapter one, it seemed like it was a similar event. They, they, they died at the same time. And so now there's this empty space with her sons. There's no longer her sons coming to greet her. And hey, mom, how, how are you doing? You know, there's no calls or texts from, from the sons. There, there's, there's empty space. And that caused Naomi to get to this place of saying, you know, I'm bitter. I'm angry. And I'm angry at God. Because God has allowed this emptiness in my life. And, and I believe that God is opposed to me. And God is actually against me. But God wasn't against Naomi. And God pursues the heart of Naomi, even though Naomi wasn't necessarily pursuing God. And thankfully, in our emptiness, and our brokenness, and sometimes our bitterness, God doesn't leave us in that place. And he begins to pursue us for the intention of, of restoring. And now Naomi holds this little baby. And this baby is placed upon her chest. And these hands that were so empty, these hands that were, were empty of, of the hand of her husband, these hands that were empty of the hands of her son. She's, she's never going to touch her husband's hand again. Never going to touch her son's hands again. There's this unexpected joy in her life. These little tiny hands and these little tiny feet and Obed is born. And there is nothing better on this planet than a newborn, an infant, asleep on your chest. Right? I think all of us as parents miss that with our kids. And, you know, and inevitably for me, it would make me fall asleep too. You know, they're, they're asleep, and then before you know it, you're, you're asleep, and oh, what, what a joy. Naomi is experiencing this in her life. Deep sorrow turned to radiant joy. Emptiness gave way to fullness. What can we learn from Naomi's experience? Is when we have that tendency to think God's against us, that he is taken from me, to go, Lord, I trust you. I trust that you're going to restore. And it doesn't mean that there's always going to be a happy ending. It doesn't mean that Naomi didn't have dark days and hard days and pain over the loss of her husband and two sons. But it's this trust in going, God, I know that you're good and that you do good according to your purposes. That you're going to bring restoration out of this painful situation. That you're going to glorify yourself. That you're going to teach me more about you. Many times we can look back at the pain in our lives. We can look back at the loss of our lives and go, I never would want to go through that again. But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for what I've learned about the Lord. I'm so thankful how God was faithful and he continued to, to pursue me in, in that time. So great celebration that's taking place here for, for Naomi. In verse 16, and also the neighbor women gave him a name saying there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. It's kind of a funny name for a kid. Go to bed Obed. Right. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David. Obed means worshiper. Obed means worshiper. Think how this may have impacted David. So David's grandfather is Obed, and his great-grandfather is Boaz. We see a spiritual heritage in David's life. When we look at this young shepherd boy, we tend to think that his heart for God came from nowhere. I believe that it came out of Naomi's heart for God, Ruth's heart for God, Boaz's heart for God, that ended up in Jesse and got passed down uh, to David. How did Obed impact David's life? He definitely knew his grandfather. I bet that his grandfather impacted him. It's not coincidence that David had a grandfather whose name was Worshipper, right? And hearing the story of God's redemption in Ruth's life through, through Boaz. I think our greatest prayer and joy is that God would reach the heart of our kids and our grandkids, that they would know the Lord and, and walk with the Lord. And as parents, may God continue to lead us through the power of the Spirit to invest spiritually in the lives of our kids. And, and grandparents, if I could encourage you and just speak to you, I, I, I'm not a grandparent, and, but I know that there's a unique position that grandparents have in their, their kids' lives. You know, thankfully, we're really blessed on both sides with, with the, the, the grandparents, and our kids just love their grandparents. And the grandparents have an influence that the, the parents don't have. And sometimes Amber and I will be sharing with our kids, and they're like, oh, you're dad. You know, you're, you're a dinosaur, right? You know, but then grandma or grandpa shares it with our kids, and it's like, oh, wow, okay. I, I'll, I'll listen to that, because you're, you're grandma and grandpa. And when you think about uh, your life as a grandparent, is, is more time at work what you really want at this season of your life, you know? A little more, mo- more money in a 401k. Uh, a greater seashell collection. Is that what we want at the end of our lives? To be like, man, I, I use these golden years to get this great seashell collection. Or maybe an incredible golf score, right? Now, is there anything wrong with those things? Going to the beach, you know, hiking mountains, improving on your golf score. No. But I think when we come to this point of our graves, we would love to see investment in grandkids, wouldn't we? You know, take a grandkid golfing. Take, take a grandkid to, to the beach. Share with them the things of God. Share with them what God has done in your life. I've heard so many testimonies over the years that it was grandma that taught me how to read the Bible. It was grandma that shared the stories of, of Scripture with me. It was, grandma was praying for me. Grandpa was, was investing in me. You know, grandpa took me fishing and, and taught me how to be able to fish. And we don't have all the details here, do we? We don't know how Obed impacted David. But I imagine that he did. I imagine that he did have an impact, and we do see a spiritual heritage that was passed on. So in this section, can we just take a a pause and celebrate redemption? I mean, everybody's excited about what God is doing in Ruth and, and Boaz's life, and Obed is born. And one of the things that should cause our hearts to rejoice is redemption. When we see someone get saved, we have just witnessed the greatest miracle even more so than Lazarus rising from the dead. When Lazarus rises from the dead, that was incredible, but he died again. When someone receives Christ as their Savior, they're the child of God and they have everlasting life, and that causes us to rejoice. The angels in heaven throw a party when one sinner repents because they know the value of redemption, of salvation. They get excited about it. 
in our own lives to be thankful if we're in Christ to know that we're redeemed. That God loved us enough to send his son to allow us to be in continual relationship with Jesus. Ruth's in continual relationship with Boaz. They're blessed in in their marriage and we have this amazing union with Christ. God has forgiven us of our sins, our names written in the Lamb's book of life and to rejoice, to take joy in our our salvation. And redemption's a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate, to be able to rejoice. So let's just go, woo, yeah, woo, yeah, all right. I knew you guys could get Pentecostal on me. You know, the nine o'clock service kind of has a bad rap. Did you guys realize that? The Saturday night crew talks about you guys. Like, like the, the Sunday morning at nine, they're hardly awake. And no, I'm just teasing. I'm just messing with you. The last section is we see redemption foretold in the genealogy, pointing to Christ. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And in Matthew chapter 1, it follows from David all the way to Jesus Christ. David longed to build God a temple, a permanent dwelling place. It was the ultimate desire of his heart. But God told him no. You you can't because you're a man of war and your hands are too bloody. It's going to be your son Solomon that's going to build the temple. But God then looks at David and says, I'm going to build you a house. And your house is going to be forever. And that spoke of Jesus coming through the line of David. And redemption is foretold in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I want us to quickly turn to Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And let's look at the first five verses of the genealogy of Christ and we'll see God's redemption and we'll see the grace that's expressed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Terah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Salmon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. One thing to clear up here is we see Boaz by Rahab. And some have assumed that Rahab was Boaz's mom. And at first reading, you could easily come to that conclusion. But as you study the Old Testament in detail, Rahab lived in the time of Joshua, which was 250 years or 300 years prior to to Boaz. So when the scripture says that Rahab was uh, Boaz's mom, it it speaks of her being the ancestress, similar to when the scripture says Abraham was our father. Not he's he's my biological dad, but he is my, my ancestor. 
So the big picture of what we just read here is normally in a Jewish genealogy, which is very important to the nation of Israel, your genealogy, not so much to us, is at this time they would not include women's names in the genealogy. That wasn't the common practice. Ladies, I'll apologize for that. Shouldn't have been that way. Moms are awesome, right? We know that to be true. But they, they would not put women's names in there. Also, they would not put foreigners into their genealogy. They weren't proud of foreigners being placed in. But what do we find here? There, there's four women that are included. First, there was Judah that was included here with Tamar. So Tamar and Judah's relationship, which was, was very broken. Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute, who God redeemed her life. Then Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Moabitess. The wife of Uriah, of course, is Bathsheba, and David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. What is God expressing in his genealogy? He's expressing grace and redemption from the very beginning. He's saying, look way back here, when all this started with the genealogy, with Abraham, and how it continues through the generations, God doesn't have a perfect genealogy for his son. If we were picking the genealogy of Christ, we would probably want it to be squeaky clean, right? But not God. God is communicating from the very beginning that Jesus came for sinners, that he came to die for the broken and be able to do a wonderful work of restoration and redemption in their life. So as we conclude this morning... I believe that it's God's heart to encourage us in this area of restoration and being restored to joy. And I think and I pray and I hope that as we go through books of the Bible, that it's, it's timely for us as a church and that it's timely for our lives personally. And maybe like Naomi and like Ruth, you're carrying quite a heavy burden. And you feel empty. And you're looking at God and you're going, God, can, can I trust you? Are you going to do good? Are you going to glorify yourself in the midst of this situation? And maybe you've even become bitter. And as we've been reading through this, it's really easy for this to have a pretty quick study that comes and goes. Four or five weeks, we study the book of Ruth and go, oh, that, that's a nice story. But then also to, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and to say, Lord, I know that you're desiring to restore my spirit. Isaiah 61 prophesies of Jesus and tells us that he came to heal the brokenhearted. And he came to set the captive free. So he came to die for our sin, for us to have forgiveness, for the power of sin to be broken in our lives. But an amazing savior and shepherd who wants to heal our broken heart. And I got to tell you, only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. And we can get input and, and there's value from, from counselors and pastors and books. But ultimately, that should just be pointing us to Jesus. He's the ultimate counselor. He's the one that can heal our broken heart. I have no idea how the circumstances will turn out. I don't know if God's going to fill your hands. If your hands have been empty. And the Lord's going to bless you with an obed in a sense. We don't have that guarantee in scripture. God doesn't guarantee Cinderella happy type of endings. He does in terms of eternity. That, in eternity, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. When you put your eyes on eternity, it, it is going to finish well. But in this life, there is going to be tribulation. But what Jesus does promise and provide is a willingness to heal our hearts. 
So in just a moment, we're going to close in prayer. And if you would like to respond, I would encourage you to, to come and pray with someone on the ministry team. Pray with one of the pastors. I, I think God does a great work in our lives when we respond to what he's doing. And we acknowledge and we say, man, I've, I've been bitter. Or I need God to restore my joy. It's been a long time since I've rejoiced in redemption. I really have had a heart of unbelief, of not believing that God can bring beauty out of this, this broken situation and come and, and receive prayer. And also, if you've never trusted Christ for, for salvation, see, Jesus paid the price for sin to, to redeem us, to, to buy us back. But in order for us to receive it, we have to do that through faith. So not everyone is saved. There's this teaching out there of universalism that once Jesus died upon the cross, everyone is saved. But God tells us, Jesus declares to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, this broad invitation, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's the key to coming into the kingdom? It's belief. Jesus goes on to say, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. If you go through your life rejecting Christ, rejecting his work upon the cross, not believing that he's God, you're separated from God for all of eternity. God wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. And as we worship, come find someone on the ministry team. We'll be right down here in the front. Just let us know. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. If you have questions, we'd love to answer your questions and try to answer uh, your questions. But make that decision of faith. So let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for our redemption. We thank you that you so willingly came to this earth, died upon the cross, rose again so that we could be saved, that we could be your children, that as the church we could be the, the bride of Christ. And today, may you deepen our joy in our salvation. God, we also thank you that you use the pain, you use the brokenness in our lives to restore and help us to know you in a greater way. Father, I pray that you would touch hearts. Lord, you know us and you know those that are carrying weights and carrying burdens and that you desire to do that work of, of redemption in lives. So Lord, as, as we sing, may we respond to what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. For those that don't know you, God, would you make it clear the need for, for salvation and, and bring people into your kingdom. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.